What a blessing it is to be able to be here today to appreciate, as has already been noticed more than once in the time of our gathering this morning, what an opportunity it is ours to make our effort in worshiping the God of heaven and to do so in a way that we're certain He has asserted in His Word it'll be acceptable, and that's our goal. That certainly is our desire. The Resurrection of Christ is the title I gave to the lesson this morning, and you may want to be turning to that text in Philippians 3, and we will look at a few other passages along with that one, but at least we'll begin our lesson with a few of these comments on this next slide. We certainly would agree that everything concerning the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, is significant. Everything, of course, has an importance attached to it as it relates to Him. And certainly we reach a bit of a zenith as we reflect upon His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And as we all know, this is that particular Sunday of the year in which it has been set aside as Easter. A very different one, no doubt, than what perhaps has been any of our lifetimes to think about the way most would reflect upon and in many cases celebrate. But I thought we would devote the lesson today to a reaffirmation an appreciation of three significances attached to the resurrection of the Master and use those significances to embed in our thinking some marvelous matters that should be a foundation for our life in so many ways. With that said, the first point will perhaps be the most basic one, the fact of the resurrection. I suspect that many of us have never even had a question. We have been trained and tutored and schooled in such a way that the resurrection of Christ is a basic truth not to be doubted. But you know, there are others who feel very differently about that. I, in fact, ask you to consider a quote at the top of that slide. Would you listen to this? If it makes your blood boil slightly, I can understand if it brings to your heart a sense of uneasiness that some would feel this way, I understand. But one author put it like this. The resurrection of Jesus is a hoax. Same writer affirmed, the gospel writers fabricated the resurrection story. Same author went on to say, the legend of Jesus' resurrection, and notice he put that in quotation marks, developed over a period of time. This particular author, motivated by any number of things, asserted that he was convicted there was never a resurrection of Jesus. His followers made it up, and they used it to develop thinking in people that they wanted them to think. He tried to use some evidences, and I've only listed a couple of them. He pointed to the book of Mark. And he claims, have you ever noticed that Mark ends differently than either Matthew, Luke, or John? And he bases his appreciation upon that connected to this fact. He says Paul's recollections of the resurrection are different than the others, and there's contradictions there. Based upon those observations, he asserted those quotations I listed at the top. Now, you and I know very well that this person's approach to that, very different. He has taken things from their context. He has asserted things not in light of the statements the Bible makes. And so I wanted you and I to devote the rest of that slide to a reaffirmation beginning like this. That word resurrection, it literally means a raising up. 
And in the context, of course, of referring to the Master, raising from the dead. Although it's true that there have been some who asserted He never really died. Believe it or not, there are some who say He only fainted while He was on the cross. He went into a coma while He was on the cross, but He didn't die, some would say. And therefore, He never was really even dead. You and I can't believe that. The text over on many different occasions asserts that He died, He was buried. In fact, the Roman soldiers were even convinced that He was dead. They came to Him and after thrusting, of course, the spear in His side, they appreciated the fact in John chapter 19, He was dead. Isn't it interesting in light of those observations? Some of the things at the bottom are now to be noted. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, we come to understand and to see the following. In boldness, Peter stood before a group of assembled Jews on that occasion. He and together with the other eleven, they proclaimed majestically and powerfully the characteristics of Jesus. They talked about His life. They referred to His death, but they didn't all. In verse 24, Peter rather dramatically said, God hath raised him up, whereof we all are witnesses. The strongest evidence that you and I ever appreciate in courts of law or other places is eyewitness accounts. If someone says, I saw it, on that occasion, Peter said, we are witnesses. Note verse 32 of that same chapter. We are witnesses of this resurrection. We saw the resurrected Lord. Not only did they see Him, perhaps we could pause right now and note this observation. On that day of Pentecost, when Peter, of course, stood before that group and proclaimed, remember there were thousands of Jews gathered. Now the Jews were by and large rather antagonistic to the gospel message. They didn't have a great deal of interest in propagating it. All it would have taken to absolutely put to death once and for all the matter of Christianity is for somebody that day to stand up and say, I'm sorry, Peter, you're not right. I'll take you to the body. I'll show you the body. And that ought to put to rest all of this supposed nonsense about a resurrection. But you know, not one person that day could stand up and say that. And that's all they would have had to do. And that would have put an end to Christianity. But they couldn't. There was no body. The Lord was resurrected. And remember, it had only been a few weeks since the events of that, that Passover season of the year that year. Only a few weeks. They couldn't take Peter to the body. There was no body to be taken to. Not only that, look at passages such as Acts 26 verse 23 when somewhat later in the book of Acts, Peter standing before both Agrippa and Festus was quick to point out to them, the fact that God raised him up. This Jesus was resurrected. Now, a number of years had passed, of course, since the event, but the thoroughness of it, the factual character of it, had not in any way waned. Maybe it's fair to say that in Romans 1 verse 4, this dramatic statement is found. As one begins the Roman letter, Paul was able to write, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power 
by His resurrection from the dead. I suppose we ought to reflect a bit upon the nature of that statement. He was declared to be the Son of God. How? By His resurrection from the dead. It is true, isn't it, that all of us are going to die if the Lord delays His coming. And every human being that's ever lived, with but very few exceptions, have all met the same fate. Death is not unusual. Death by itself is not a matter that is difficult to appreciate. We all have seen it. But to be resurrected is a different story. When's the last time we saw the cemetery emptied? When's the last time we saw the particular place in which bodies had been laid emptied? You see, Jesus is said to be the first fruits of them that slept. The first one to come forth from the grave in the same way that He did, to come forth never to die again. Maybe it is in that connection, and we can note this. It was the text of Philippians 3 that Cale read earlier. Beginning in verse number 9, as Paul addressed the church in Philippi, listen to these remarkable words. And be found in Him. Paul says, My greatest aim, my highest objective and thrust is to be found in Christ. Not having mine own righteousness, for we don't have any, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Paul says, I want to know about Christ and I want to know the power connected to His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul looked forward to a resurrection and he says, My hope is based on His. The fact the Lord was resurrected provides a guaranteed appreciation that all of us can look forward to the same. Now that kind of hope transcends life upon this earth. That kind of hope transcends anything that may be the particulars of our environment and circumstances here. One last thing about that slide is this one. Do you notice in the language of Paul, no question whatsoever... And this man traversed the Roman Empire in various places, preaching to whoever he could get together about the reality of what we've just noted. It's a fascinating thing then to see in 1 Peter 1.21 that a different gospel writer, a different Bible writer, I should say, Peter, on this occasion, rather immediately said, as he spoke about the resurrection, he said, God raised him. That's a matter-of-fact statement. No way to misinterpret it. No way to misunderstand it. This is what God did. You and I frequently encounter the miracles of the Bible. He parted the Red Sea. He made iron swim in 2 Kings 6. He healed those that were blind. Just to name a few. And just as certainly as we have conviction and faith in all of them, we believe absolutely in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So point number one has been this. The resurrection is a fact. But that immediately begs the following observation. And as far as application to us, how beautiful to notice 
a number of blessings that we enjoy because of the Lord's resurrection. It's not that we have these because of any other source. They're only through the reality of the resurrection. Let's highlight a few of them. I thought it entirely fair to begin the way that Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15. In that resurrection chapter of the Bible, you might note especially verse 14. As Paul was reasoning with those who were in Corinth, he said, If Jesus is not raised, our faith is vain. You know, there are individuals who perhaps would do many things based upon what they would call faith. But one thing Paul said, if Jesus was never raised, not only is our preaching vain, our faith is vain. Without the Lord's resurrection, our faith is pointless. It's empty. It has no power within it. But it's because of that resurrection we have full conviction of what lies beyond this life and we understand that the grave is not the end. Look at that next point if you would. It's in that same chapter where Paul puts it in this language. Verse number 20. I might direct your attention especially to the wonderful wording that appears at that position. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But now, you may note the adverb, but now is Christ risen from the dead. He has been raised. Paul, what's your point? And become the first fruits of them that slept. The first fruits, and we've often noted, especially in the Sunday morning Bible class, how that in the Old Testament, when the individuals that were Jewish presented their first fruit offerings to God, it was the first of the harvest of the year. And it was, as they offered that to God, God's guarantee of the larger harvest to follow. That is to say, the full harvest of the grain would then follow, and that first fruits presentation to God was a beautiful offering to Him, but a guarantee of all the harvest that was to come after it. In this instance, Paul uses that word and says that the Lord's resurrection is the first fruits for all of us. How do you know you're going to be raised? How do I know that I will one day be a participant in the general resurrection? You and I have never seen that happen to anybody with our physical eyes. We've never known of anyone who could tell us that happened. But we read about it here. And through the eye of faith and the reality of the Lord's resurrection, we have full conviction that we too will experience a resurrection. For that reason on that slide, that word first fruits is used in some other places of the New Testament, such as Romans 16, 5, where there a person was the first convert in a particular area, but many other converts followed. I would add to all of that then this observation. The Lord was raised for our justification. Romans 4, 25. Raised for our justification. How can you and I stand justified before God? How is it we can be right? It's only because of the fact the Lord was raised, proving Him to be the Son of God, and so He can, in fact, offer the inspired things of heaven that He has. And that includes the forgiveness offered through His blood. That kind of idea invites me to ask you to reflect on what the Lord told Martha 
on one occasion. In John chapter 11, Lazarus had passed away. You and I remember he had, he had died, and Jesus, a couple of days later, came to the place, in fact, where in, where in fact Lazarus had been as he came. You notice that Martha entered into a conversation with him. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. She knew he could have kept him alive. She knew he could work miracles, but now he has passed away. But Jesus quickly told her this in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now that's powerful. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection. He offers the capability and the power for one and all to be resurrected to life. Those words of John chapter 5 echo in our thinking, do they not? Where Jesus made this statement, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. All of us are going to be resurrected. All of us are going to be raised. And that reality is founded upon the evidence and proof of the fact Jesus was. Nearing the bottom of that slide, may I offer then the hope that the Bible does for all of us. In the midst of a world gone so wrong in so many ways, people choose sinfulness over godliness, they choose iniquity over that which is right. They choose to hurt and harm and to look completely opposite the blessed teachings of Jesus. We know we live in a world like this, motivated, of course, by the devil, prompting choices that are unwise and in many cases even, even very hurtful. But in the midst of that, we look for a place with no defilement. Revelation 21, 27. We look for a place in which Jesus Himself, as well as the Father, provide all the things needed in Jesus is the fullness of the light. Revelation 21, verses 21 and following. Maybe that kind of hope has prompted Christians now for many, many years. It would seem reasonable at this point to comment about the anchor of consistency that is the teaching of the Word of God. As you and I assemble today in the, in, in the way that we are, we are doing that which faithful brothers and sisters in Christ have now done. By my count, for approximately 104,000 first days of the week. Think about that number. Approximately 104,000 first Sunday, first days of the week. There's been that many Sundays, roughly, since the Lord was crucified, since the Lord was resurrected, since the church began. And yet, as we continue in the fullness and conviction of the hope due to Christianity, we are anchored on the continuance of these ideas and rest assured that through 2,000 years nothing has changed. And yea, it will not change, no matter how many years may persist onward. Let's close that slide like this. The hope that you and I then have, these blessings that the resurrection brings to us, then leads us to one final part of the lesson today. What about the connection between the resurrection of Jesus 
at the great day of judgment. Now it might well be that that connection is not quite as strong in our mind, but there are some verses that shed a great deal of light upon the correctness of the, of the association. Let's begin in Acts 17. If I could in fact invite you to reflect and perhaps picture it in your mind, Paul was standing in the city of Athens, and as he preached to these of the intelligentsia gathered on that occasion, those that had been given to so much superstition, beginning in verse 30, he said, "...the times of this ignorance God winked at." But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day, in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. We mustn't allow the latter part of verse 31 to pass us by too quickly. He first asserted the need for repentance. You can't continue living this way and please God. And then he explained, because there's coming a day of judgment when everybody will have been commanded to repent and one must appreciate having accomplished it by then. And then he puts it upon this foundation. He has given assurance unto all men. How do you and I know there's going to be a day of judgment? There's so many in our world today who live as though there's never going to be a day of judgment. They seem to think, I can do what I want, motivated the way I want, accomplishing it the way I want, and you don't have any right to tell me any different. We do live in a land of liberty, do we not? But yet the fact is, God is the sovereign ruler of all. And His will is supreme, and we are going to face a day of judgment. Romans 14, 12 says, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. There will be no exceptions. We're all going to be there. And Paul said in Acts 17, here's the reason why that's true. God raised him from the dead. Just as surely as the Lord was resurrected, with that same assurance there will be a day of judgment. Now you and I don't know when our time upon this earth will end. We know many faithful brothers and sisters in Christ have long since passed away and they are still waiting in the realms beyond in that Hadean realm. But of course, that same fate could be yours and mine. When Jesus made His statement in the various truths concerning His resurrection, we now notice the judgment is based upon it. And what a terror that day of judgment, of course, presents to those unprepared, to those not ready, to those who have never availed themselves of the gospel message and faithful obedience. About the middle of that slide then, I would ask us perhaps to close it with the following set of thoughts. When the Lord was resurrected, you and I may note there were some differences between some things that had taken place before. Ponder this with me. Lazarus, Jesus raised him back to life in John 11. But the time came, Lazarus died again. The time came, he met the end of his life upon this earth in death. Interestingly, Lazarus thus died twice. But you know, there were some others in that category. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. She died again. Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain. He died again. But when the Lord was resurrected, He never died again. 
He resurrected never to die anymore. And it is that sense or that element that I would urge us to put in our thinking. We look forward to that time on that beautiful morning of resurrection when we will rise never to die again. The Bible does speak about the second death in Revelation 20. This terrible lot of those unprepared to meet the Lord, who though they may have died upon earth physically, they now will suffer an eternal death, if you please, separated from God. And yet, you and I look forward with great anticipation to being resurrected to life, to bliss, to joy, to reunion with all the faithful of all the ages, and more than anything else, reunion with Jesus Christ our Lord with the great God of heaven and understanding the blessing that should be ours to appreciate some thoughts like these. One of the attachments that you and I are blessed to be able to see has to do with baptism in this connection. When a person dies to sin, we call that repentance. That old man of sin is then buried that's what we call baptism. And the person rises to walk in newness of life. There is a kind of resurrection there, rising to walk in newness of life. That person isn't a servant of the devil anymore. That person has as his or her faithful approach the complete and dedicated service to King Jesus. Paul speaks about this in Romans 6, doesn't he? Know ye not that so many of us as were, as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's verses 3 through 5 of Romans chapter 6. And therefore we have participated in a kind of resurrection, but it only whets our appetite for the greater one that will occur at the day of on that great day, that resurrection morning. Three points in the lesson this morning. As we have looked at them one by one, they bring us to a point of conclusion. Every single word of the Bible is, of course, true. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, rest in our heart that every word of God is tried. Every single word of it. In that connection, we then have cast a spotlight today on the blessed resurrection of Jesus. And although today the world, perhaps more than any other day of the year, will turn its attention to the sweetness and the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus, we are honored and blessed to celebrate it far more often than once a year. In fact, every first day of the week, we bring, as Paul says, the gospel message to our hearts, and it surrounds the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 4. In that connection, two quick observations then, and the lesson will be yours. As we've looked at the resurrection, it's a fact, an unquestioned fact. And in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, we are going to proclaim the Lord's death until He come. But as we proclaim His death, as we shall do shortly in, in the Lord's Supper observance, you and I know that in life, every single opportunity that is ours as Christians, we excitedly, with great thrill, 
appreciate the nature of the resurrection because as Christians, we have been resurrected to life, but we look forward to the reality of that day of judgment when we understand we'll be allowed to be pronounced into the eternity of bliss that we call heaven. And so in that connection, not only is the resurrection a fact, but what blessings are ours and how it points us to contemplate its connection to the judgment. It might well be someone in this audience would be in a position to, as you've reflected upon these matters perhaps in recent days and even this morning, you have been brought to realize again the changelessness of the gospel message. How that those who lived 200 years ago, a thousand years ago, 1,500 years ago, they were subject to the same message we are. Nothing has changed about it, and nothing shall ever change about it. What constancy. And that kind of an anchor is very comforting in the midst of a world that so often reflects change and fads and new things. The old Jerusalem gospel is still what we need And it's still the only thing that can save individuals. If there's a wayward child of God among us today, one that would like to be rededicated to the cause of Christ, we're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of invitation. And we'd be honored to speak with you for a moment and then to pray to God on your behalf and upon your confession and repentance, He's promised to forgive you. If you have or have never become a Christian, oh, what a day this could be. The 12th day of April, the year 2020, your spiritual birthday, the day that for you has altered all eternity. Your name could be put in the book of life today. Your name could be such that as you've placed it there, or the Lord, I should say, has placed it there, that you would be able then to appreciate all the blessings that come with this position. If we could assist you in that, you've got to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And if we could help you with that today, it'd be our joy. We'd love to celebrate with you. If any of these things would be the need of your heart and life today, why don't you let it be known and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.